Well, the disciples are coming to increasing faith and understanding of the things of God, and there's still yet more understanding that needs to happen to them as we get further in this passage. But Peter does say this when we get a little bit further in our following lessons. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the contrast between Peter's confession and the religious leader's contempt for Jesus is never more evident than what we see in the opening verses of this chapter. Now today I'd like for us to begin at verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 12. And the first part of this is a sad commentary on the blindness of the religious leaders and the hardness of their hearts. And then the second part is a warning for the disciples to beware of the religious traps that are set by Satan that can throw believers off track and cause them to go into apostasy. Now, if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse number 1, it says, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When is evening, ye say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread... Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember, the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand, that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Father, we thank you again for bringing us here today. Help us to understand the word and what you'd have for us from this passage of Scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject this morning is failure at forecasting. Several years ago, there was a song that became very popular among evangelical dispensational Christians. And if you don't understand those terms, don't worry about it too much right now. But this song became very popular, and the title of it was, Redemption Draweth Nigh. And there was one of the lines in the song that says, Signs of the times are everywhere, and there is a brand new feeling in the air. Keep your eyes upon the eastern sky, lift up your heads, Redemption draweth nigh. When I was a teenager in Kentucky, uh, my wife and I were part of a singing group, and we traveled to uh, different Baptist churches that were in our area, and then also many in the southeastern part of the United States. And this song, Redemption Draweth Nigh, was one of our staples. It was just one of the favorite songs that we used to sing. 
It was a very popular song, and the message is about the second coming of Christ, that when he comes, the redemption that we have in him will be complete. Our bodies and our spirits will be raised to be with him, to rise and meet him in the air if you are a believer in Christ when he comes. And the premise of the song is that Christ's coming is soon upon us. And that can be seen in the increasing wickedness of the world. It can be seen in the rising numbers of terrible weather events and natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, recent earthquakes and tsunamis that have happened in the world. And it's a song about forecasting the coming of Christ. It's a song about the future. But it's also a song that tells us to look at what is happening right now in front of us here in the here and now. The signs of the times. Jesus used the word or that phrase, signs of the times, in the passage. Only when he speaks here, he's not making a reference to his second coming, but he referred to what was happening right then and now in his ministry. And a question that comes to us, are we able actually to interpret the word of God and what it has to say about us right here in the here and now? And what I think happens to a lot of Christians is that we forget what we are to know about Christ and what we are to do about Christ here and now. And we keep our eyes looking for the second coming of Christ and wondering what it's going to be like then. And we have our mind on these heavenly things all of the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think Christians really ought to be thinking about heavenly things. Our minds always ought to be upon Christ and his work. But we ought not to become, like that old saying goes, so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Now, in some ways, that parallels the first part of this chapter. And that is, the Jews were so much looking forward to the coming kingdom and the promises that they found in the Old Testament about what that kingdom would be like that they missed the Messiah who was right then in their presence. They were waiting for a future encounter that they would have with the coming king. And they didn't realize that they were speaking to the one who actually is the king. That he was right there among them. Well, as you speak to people about Jesus, you'll find that they have all different sorts of ideas about him. Uh, Most of those ideas are really have no basis for belief except for something that people perceive in their minds. And they don't realize that everything that there is to know about Jesus Christ, everything that you can know about him, is found in the pages of Scripture. We read God's holy word to find out what God expects from us, to find out who Jesus is, to find out what he is really like. Now, I'd like for us to look at this passage and... My message today, I'd like to to discuss uh, how people miss the clarity of the Bible and its revelation of Jesus and how that believing the wrong religious forecasting can actually imperil your soul. Now, there are two parts in the sermon today. The first one is this fact that's taught by Jesus, that it is wrong to seek a sign for faith. It is wrong to base your faith upon a sign. Now, we notice in the first verse, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And there's something in that first statement that immediately catches our attention, that the word sign is used in the same context as tempting. So there's something wrong in asking for the type of sign that the scribes and the Sadducees wanted to see from Jesus. 
Now, let's set that part aside for just a few minutes. We're going to come back to that. But first, I'd like for us to just take a look at the oddity of these two groups that approached Jesus as he arrived at this particular place on the Sea of Galilee. And we notice here first the coalition against Christ, this gathering of religious leaders that came to oppose Christ. Now, here we are winding down to the last part of Jesus' ministry, and instead of being greeted by the normal crowds that came, ones that came to be healed, here Jesus is met by an alliance of religious leaders. This is only the second time in Matthew that we see this group that is called the Sadducees. Now, we're very familiar by now with the Pharisees. That, those are the ones that were always accosting Jesus. We find them often in the crowds. But this is really, uh, we, we haven't really heard too much about this other group called the Sadducees. Now, in the third chapter, we find them together when they came to the baptism of John. And at that time, John spotted these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in the crowd. And he issued a very stern warning against them. So that we read in verse number 7 of Matthew 3, but when he saw, that's John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Now John's opinion of these two religious groups was none too glowing. He rejected their pretenses and their religious piety and demanded that they repent of their sins. And as he goes on discussing them in that third chapter, he lumped them together and he told them that God would destroy their religious system, that the Christ that was coming would destroy what they were teaching. So John lumped them together as being rejects from God's kingdom, but they were not in any sense together in their religious opinions. Now, it wasn't common to see these two groups together. They actually hated one another. They were sworn enemies of each other. In fact, what the Sadducees tried to do was to undo the system of the rites and rituals and all of the things that the Pharisees had put in place. And so the Sadducees are what you could call a reform movement. Only they didn't seek for a reformation that would bring people back to the truth of God's word. Instead, this group of people was the rationalist. They denied the supernatural. They did not believe in spirits or in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They had reduced religion to an ethical code to live by. And they were very much like people today who believe that we have the innate ability within us to please God that we don't really need anything supernatural, that we can come to God without anybody's help and not without God's help even. We don't need that. We can recognize who God is and we can come to him. Now the Sadducees at this time had taken over the office of the high priest. They were the elite aristocrats. And both Pharisees and Sadducees were represented on the highest court in the land, highest court of the Jews, and that was called the Sanhedrin And just like the Supreme Court today, where justices on the court fight between themselves or one group fights against another, you find the exact same thing among the Pharisees and Sadducees on the high religious court. Now, you go on reading in the New Testament and you'll find in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin and he was wise enough to use their differences against them. 
And so, remember, Paul split the court right down the middle when he said that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Pharisees believed that, and Paul had come from the sect of the Pharisees, but the Sadducees did not. So it was very unusual outside of that high religious court to see these two groups together. But you know what brought them together? It was their mutual contempt for Jesus. It was their hatred of him. They were united together by the blackness of their hearts and by the blindness of their eyes to the truth. And so they pooled their resources because they had a common goal. Jesus was going to destroy both of these religious systems. So their common goal is to come against Jesus, to reduce his uh, authority, to reduce his um, popularity among the people. So they pooled their resources because Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees because he dismissed their traditions. And he was a threat to the Sadducees because by his miracles, he taught a spirituality that undermined their rationalism. Now we move on from that to consider the condition in the present. What was happening right then? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. And that was a sign that they were quite sure was impossible for him to fulfill. And if he didn't give them what they wanted, then they would discredit him in the eyes of the people. So the Pharisees wanted something that actually matched their view of the kingdom. Jesus often used the term, one of his favorites for himself was the Son of Man. And that terminology we find in the Old Testament refers to the coming Messiah. And in the Old Testament, it tells us that when the Messiah comes, that he'll come with power and with glory from heaven. So if he truly is the Messiah, then he should be able to prove who he is by giving some sort of a sign from the heavens. So the Pharisees wanted him to do something like part the clouds and let the glory of God shine through. Or they wanted him to do something like Moses did, as they read in the Old Testament, where Moses was ready to feed the people and God sent down manna from heaven. Or they wanted him to do something like we find in the book of Joshua, where Joshua stopped the sun from going across the sky. Or they wanted him to do something like Elijah did, when he called down fire from heaven. Now the Sadducees expected none of that could happen. They didn't believe in it anyway. They didn't believe in supernatural things. They didn't believe in miracles. So they were sure that when Jesus was asked to do things like this, that he could not do it. Now we notice Jesus' reply to this request. He responded by showing their complete ignorance and their blindness to what was happening right then. In verses 2 and 3, he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? So he shows them that their natural senses are sharp. They can predict the weather by looking at the heavens. In the evening, they would see that the sky was red, and they would say, well, that means it's fair weather. In the morning, when the sky is red and the clouds are lowering, then they could tell that bad weather was approaching. Now, that same type of prediction is preserved in the old saying, the old adage, red sky at night is the shepherd's delight, and red sky in the morning is the shepherd's warning. 
And what Jesus is not saying here is that it is as easy to predict spiritual matters as it is natural ones, but he's pointing out that these religious leaders were better prophets of the weather than they were of the things of God. These are people that are supposed to be teaching the people of God what they should do and how they could be close to God and how God could be pleased with them. But they were not as good at at interpreting the scriptures which they were called to do as they were to interpreting the weather. Now that's a problem. It's a real problem because the sky, the weather, that's unstable. It's uncertain. All you need to do is look at a modern Uh, methods of forecasting that we have today, all of the instruments and all the things that we have, the radars and all of that that stuff to predict the weather, and yet you still see how often the Channel 5 gets it wrong. The sky is uncertain. It's unstable. Now, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did was to ask for a sign of a future event, and what they were unable to do was to interpret the signs that were right now in front of them. They'd already been given signs. The sign from heaven was standing right in front of them. And if they had interpreted the scriptures correctly, they could have found him in those Old Testament scriptures because the ministry that he was involved in matched the things that were said in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the prophecies. So what good is another sign going to be to them when they can't interpret the signs that have already been given? You see, they had everything that they needed, but they were unable to interpret what God had already showed them. Now, here's the thing about this, folks. If signs and if miracles are a sign of great faith, then these are people with no faith. Now, isn't that one of the problems that we see in the fastest-growing religious movements of our time? One of the fastest growing that really has kind of taken the world by storm. And if you go and you look or you read the statistics about what's happened in third world countries especially, you'll find that the charismatic movement is one that has uh, captured the attention of the world with an emphasis, on an extreme emphasis on sign gifts. Things like speaking in tongues and miraculous prophecies and faith healings. And they teach... Their theology says that these signs, these things, these miracles are evidence of great faith. And yet when they can't find those practices in Scripture, they depart from the objective ministry of God's Word and they begin to rely on the subjective feelings and emotions of man. The opinions and the feelings become the standard of truth rather than what is clearly written in God's Word. And so you'll notice in their preaching that there is no real exposition of Scripture. Nothing is kept in its context so that all Scripture will harmonize together. As one commentator wrote, Unbelief trusts God no further than it can see with its eyes and feel with its hands, while true faith relies on the Word of God even though it sees neither signs nor miracles. So the religious movements today are people that are constantly looking for the next miracle to occur. The, the, the latest miracle is not enough. That will not sustain their emotional highs. So if today's miracle happened to be the last one they would ever see, then what would happen to their faith? If your faith is built on miracles and there are no more miracles, then what happens to your faith? And you have to ask the question, is faith so transient that it only relies on what is seen with the eyes? That's not the faith that we find in the scriptures. 
That's not the faith that God asks for. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in the fulfillment of the only sign that he gave that would validate everything that he said. And what is the sign? He describes it in verse number 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now that takes us back to a familiar statement that he made in chapter 12 when he explained the sign of Jonas. Matthew 12 says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, or that's Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice there again in that passage we see the term the Son of Man. That's the Messianic name. So they wanted the Messiah to give them a sign from the heavens. It's too soon for that kind of a sign. They looked at the wrong time for this sign because it was not the time for the Messiah to come and to establish a kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, but nevertheless, there was a sign, and the sign that would be given was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, how is our faith built? On what do we build the faith that we have in Christ? Is it by the miracle gifts? Is it gifts of the Spirit? Is it that we can see something other than is actually recorded in the Scripture? Or the one sign that Jesus promised that proved everything that he said, and is the validation of our faith, is his resurrection. And so we look back at that, and we read in the scripture, we, we see that there are eyewitnesses of it, and there, there is no data anywhere to refute the historical record of what happened to Jesus. The apostle Paul, in writing in 1 Corinthians, said, this is what validates our faith, it validates our preaching, it validates our hope, it validates our standing with God, And so what is someone doing when they're asking God to give them another sign? If you don't accept this one thing as being enough, when the word of God says this validates all that Jesus did, if you don't accept that as enough, then there is no sign that's adequate to underscore your faith. You you can't find another sign that's substantial enough to build faith on if you can't build it upon the resurrection of Christ. Now I want you to notice thirdly, the change that is coming. Pharisees and the Sadducees knew more about the signs of the weather than they did the signs that predicted their own downfall, the downfall of that false religious system. Jesus came with teachings of, about a new heart, with an emphasis on grace. He taught love and mercy, but that was counter to the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and we saw that at the beginning of the 15th chapter, Jesus taught love, but as we saw there, they couldn't even love their own parents. They threw their own parents under the bus when when they needed help, and they invented all these kinds of rules that allowed them to get around and to break one of God's main commandments, which is to honor your father and your mother. The Bible says that that is the first commandment with promise. That's, That's the second part of the Decalogue, and it's the only one that actually comes with a promise. Now, they should have seen Jesus' power and his, and his authority over disease and death and demons, all of which their religion had no power at all to deal with. And they should have seen that, that this is a prediction 
of their doom. This is a prediction of the end of their religious system. I mean, it's like they're facing the handwriting on the wall like we see in Daniel. And Jesus is saying to them, you have been found or you've been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Your, Your days are numbered. You have a short time left. And he was right. When you get to Matthew chapter 24, he brings in the prediction of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And in less than 40 years, the whole system crashed to the ground. They could read the weather far better than they could read the signs that had been given. So Jesus called them hypocrites. As leaders of religion, they neglected the spiritual signs that they were called to interpret. Now notice this sad statement at the end of verse number 4, and he left them and departed. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now adultery... It's used here in the same sense that we find it in the Old Testament, the way the the prophets used it. And it's used to refer to spiritual prostitution. It's unfaithfulness to the covenant of God. So they turned away from the covenant of God to establish their own system of righteousness. And they believed that rather than knowing that they needed the righteousness of God. So Jesus left them and departed. And the word there that's used for departed is a very serious word because it means to abandon. Jesus abandoned them. And that's what happens when people continually reject the truth of God's word. I mean, what what, what else is there left to say? What are you going to say to people when they continually reject God's word? He's already given all the evidence that you ever need to believe in him. It's all recorded in the scripture. All of it's been written down. And so if you look for other signs than what he's already given, then Jesus will depart from you. Some time ago, Jorge was telling me about a man that he worked with that hated God and anything to do with religion. Now, it might be better for Jorge to tell that story. Maybe sometime I'll have him come up and give you the whole thing. But Jorge had invited this man that he worked with to come to church. And he came. But he only came for one reason, and that was to gather information to make fun of our faith in Christ. So this man came to hear me preach, and Jorge said that every day after that he would go to work, and that man would continually mock me. Now, I I don't care if people mock me, but I do care whether they mock the message of Jesus Christ. This man said, I'll never believe in God. But then there was something that happened in his life. He lost all of the things that he had confidence in. He lost his job, and he lost his home. He lost his family members, and finally he lost his wife. And Jorge was telling me that the man moved to Washington State. He thought, well, he'd never hear from him again. But he called Jorge just a few weeks ago to let him know that God had broken him, that he had come to Christ for salvation. Now, Jorge thought that he'd never hear from the man. And one day, just out of the blue, he called him and he said, I appreciate you never giving up being a witness to me. Now, here's something very important. It is far better that God would strip you of everything that you hold dear and bring you to the point where you have nothing where you have no place to go, where you can't do anything but look up, it is far better for him to do that to you than for him to depart from you and abandon you with no hope. 
But that's what happens when you continually reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men came to Jesus, tempting him to show them a sign. And in the book of Mark, it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. He was genuinely distraught that he had done so much and taught so much, and these people still want a sign. And folks, I'm afraid that Jesus is doing the same today. There are so many people that reject what is so clearly written in God's word and they ask for signs. Give us another sign. Give us another miracle. Give us some proof of who you are. Give us some great supernatural thing that the Holy Spirit's going to do and then we will believe. And that is a hopeless faith, a faith that looks for what it can see and feel and touch. And Jesus is teaching It's wrong to seek a sign to build your faith. Now, we go into the second part of the message. Let's go a little bit faster if you're watching the clock. Number two is doctrines that lead to disaster. Doctrines that lead to disaster. Verse number five, And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Now after Jesus left the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he got into the boat with the disciples to go to the other side of the sea. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread with them. And who knows, they might have been pointing the finger at each other and, and blaming each other because nobody checked to see if they had enough food to go along with them. Jesus was still thinking about that conversation that he had with the blind religious leaders. And he said to his disciples, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think there are many times that Jesus would have loved to have a dunce hat to put it on the disciples and to shove them over in the corner somewhere and say, sit there, just think about things for a while. Now, he mentioned leaven, and they thought, well, he's talking about bread. We haven't brought any bread. They were still thinking on that physical level, just like they always had growing up in that pharisaical system. And when Jesus perceived that they didn't understand, then I think he used this kind of terminology. Why don't you just think a little bit? Use your heads Why would I be talking about not having any bread when I've just fed thousands of people? Where is your faith? Do you not yet understand that I can take nothing and make something out of it? Do you not yet understand that? And it's the same principle that he taught in Matthew chapter 6 when he told the people or told the disciples, stop worrying about everything. Stop worrying about where you're going to get your food and your shelter and your clothing. Don't worry about all that stuff. We handle that for you. And he's... Godhead, God the Father, he takes care of all of that. You don't need to worry about it. And then in verse number 12, it says, they understood that he meant to beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus used the term leaven to speak of this permeating influence of their evil doctrines. Now, do you remember when the children of Israel celebrated that first Passover as they were leaving Egypt, that they were told to get rid of the leaven that was in their houses? And that leaven symbolized the sins of Egypt. And they were not to take that old leaven with them when they went into the promised land. And I I hope you understand, I think that you do, uh, that leaven means yeast. 
Like you put yeast in bread dough, and when you put the yeast in, it goes throughout that lump of dough, and the whole lump is leaven. And he uses that as an example of how sin permeates. Leaven, leaven is a type of sin most of the time in the scriptures, and, and, it, it, and when sin infects our bodies, when it infects our worship, it just grows like a cancer. It destroys now, in this case, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching doctrines that destroy. And in the beginning, in describing the difference between the two religious sects, we learned that they're at opposite poles in their thinking. They're at two extreme positions, and both positions contain doctrines that will destroy the truth. And Jesus told his disciples, you beware of those doctrines because you can fall into heresy. And do you know that's taught over and over again in Scripture? that we are warned continually to beware of false doctrines, that we are to try all doctrines that we hear to see the source? Where do they come from? Now, doctrine is going to come from one of two places. There are only two spirits that operate in the world. One is the spirit of Christ, and the other is the spirit of Antichrist. You're not going to find any other sources of doctrine. So when I think about things like this, then I have no category to put the doctrine of the charismatics into, but one, doctrines that come from Satan. It's not found in Scripture. It comes from Satan. Now, they may not like to hear that, but if you abandon the Word of God and you look for special revelations other than what's already written in God's Word, if you look for all the other junk to build your faith on, then there's only one place to lay the blame for that, and that is the doctrine of devils. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees represent two opposite poles, and at those two poles are places where Satan lives. What is the heresy of the Pharisees? Their heresy is the danger of legalism. Legalism is the doctrine that adds anything to faith alone as the reason that we are justified by God. And if you want to know the truth of it, this is where most of the religious world settles into today. They are legalists because they believe that there's something other than faith that will help to save them. Now, the Pharisees were, were interested in what they could do. Uh, they were always looking at the outward form. Now, here's the thing about, Pharise- uh, about legalism, that, that it can really appear to be orthodox. In fact, there are some people who think that, that this is a higher form of spirituality. The Pharisees were like this. They... They were working for God, or so it seemed. They were very rigid keepers of the law. They were protectors of the law. But the religion that they had did nothing for their heart. And we've been over that so much that I don't think I need to go into it again. But Phariseeism will manifest itself, and has today, in the rituals of Roman Catholicism. You can find Phariseeism in the law books and liturgies, even of Protestantism. You can find it in our Baptist churches... And that's when people measure spirituality by anything other than what is in the heart. They have fallen prey to a form of legalism. Now hear this, because that does not mean that we have a license to do anything that we want. The Bible says that we are to live holy and righteous lives, and that's because of the change that's been brought inwardly by regeneration. It's because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that change that's happened in our lives works its way to the outside. It's not accomplished by cleaning up the outside and then trying to make your heart right. That's a danger of reformation. 
reforming self and subjecting itself, yourself to a, a set of rules that govern your life is not going to make you holy in the eyes of God. Now that works well for the perception of other people. And who, goodness knows, I mean, the Pharisees were always concerned about that. What do the other people think? But it does nothing for God because God is the one who knows the real attitude that's in your heart. That's the danger of legalism. Adding something that you could uh, be saved by, adding something to faith itself in order to be saved. That's the doctrine of the Pharisees. Well, the doctrine of the Sadducees was different from that. In fact, it throws off legalism. It, it throws off all the traditions that the Pharisees had put into place, and it stands at the other pole, but it represents a different danger, another danger, and that's the danger of liberalism. I, I've only got a short time to describe this, and we could take a great deal of time on this subject, but this is the doctrine of pragmatism. This is the doctrine that puts hope and intellect in the gathering of knowledge. The Sadducees looked at the Pharisees and they said, these are people that are trapped in a time warp. They're, they're too old-fashioned. They, they're, they're not hip enough. They're, they're not with the times. They're not up to snuff. They need to be updated. And this is what liberalism says. It's the theology of modernism. This is the religion that says, why, why are you still in that old book? Why are you still reading the Bible? Why are you still using that? It's the doctrine that says that the Bible is not inspired and inerrant. It says that we look at the Bible as higher critics. Legalism always wants to add to the Bible, but liberalism always wants to take something away from it. Take away the inerrancy of Scripture. Take away the deity of Jesus Christ. Take away the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Take away a literal resurrection. Take away the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in bringing sinners to salvation. Take all of that away because we live in the age of reason. All of these things we can figure out for ourselves. Religion is just one experience among many experiences that we have. And people say, wow, that, that's really something. Get rid of inerrancy of Scripture. Get rid of the substitutionary atonement. Get rid of all these things that are so clearly taught in the Word of God. And they say, that can never happen to me. That can never happen to me. But Jesus said, beware of it. You know who he said that to? The men that were sitting in the boat with him. Men that could reach out and touch him, that could hear the word spoken from his own mouth. He was personally with them, and he told them, he said, you have got to watch out for this. And if there is no danger, why give the warning? If they can fall, you can fall. I like this quote. The most dangerous person in this church today is the one that thinks he or she could never fall prey to false teaching or unchristian behavior or ungodly habits or skeptical doubts. That's why Christ warns all of us to sharpen our sight by remembering him, improve our spiritual senses by paying attention to the end result of all that we see and hear. God grant us the grace to discern the times. Just the other day, I read about a man who was one of our fundamental Baptist preachers. He pastored a church. He preached revivals. He was in fellowship with all the good Baptist pastors. But he became disillusioned. And he didn't just fall out of fellowship with some of the brethren. And he didn't just change positions on one or two doctrines. He just decided to chuck the whole system. He abandoned it all. 
And today, his opinion is that God is anything that you want him to be, that God is whatever you think that he is. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Legalism and liberalism are influences that will destroy you. One corrupted corrupted doctrine, you let that in, and it can influence all of the others. One requirement added to faith opens up the doors to hundreds of other requirements. You let one in, and you have destroyed the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what legalism will do to you. On the other hand, if you have doubts about anything that's recorded in Scripture, then it means you can't have confidence in anything that's said in the Bible. How can you take one part of the Bible and say, well, I can't believe that, but this part over here I like. I will believe that. You can't do that. You, you, you take one part of the Bible and you say, well, we can't believe that. That's not really true. The, the account of Genesis 1, that can't be true because now our eyes have been opened up to evolution today. And that's the way it had to have happened. Well, you doubt Genesis chapter 1, throw the rest of the Bible away. Just throw it away. You can't have confidence in any of it. That's what liberalism does to you. It takes away from the Bible. It takes away the promises of the Bible. It takes away the things that God did in his holy word. And as the Apostle Paul said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now let me tell you something about both positions. Here it says, Jesus walked away from it. He abandoned these kinds of opinions. He abandoned people who put their faith in signs rather than in him. Now I want to ask you today, where is your faith? Has Jesus done enough Has he really done enough? Do you need to see something else in order to believe in him? Is is it going to take more to convince you of who he is? Well, if, if that's the case, then you've come to the wrong place today. Because I don't have anything else to offer you other than what is written in God's holy word. I'm not going to give you another miracle. I'm not going to levitate and fly around the room. I'm not going to heal anybody today. I'm not going to speak in tongues for you today. You don't need that stuff. If you ask for another miracle, something other than what God has already given, then you're in the wrong place. We have only one thing to offer people today, only one thing for eternal life, and that is faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that is all that you need. Now, when Jesus comes back, We can forecast the future on this, that he is coming back. And when he comes back, it's whether you get to go with him is not dependent on what you're going to do then. Whether you go to be with Christ is dependent on what you do right now. You have to be ready right now. And so what we must do is to correctly interpret interpret the signs in the here and now. And if you do that, if you hear it and you believe it, then you can be sure of your standing with the King of Kings when he comes back again. Believe him now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Believe him now because there's nothing else that you're going to get by waiting till tomorrow. Nothing else is going to be revealed. It's all right here in the word of God. Jesus died on the cross and he arose from the dead and that validates it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this hour and we just joy in the word of God in hearing what is so plainly taught by Jesus 
understanding that faith in him and him alone is what saves the sinner from his sins. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that's stuck in legalism, trying to add something, do something, keep working, do further things in order to be saved, that they would abandon all of that because if they don't, you will abandon them. And I pray for anyone who has looked at the Bible as a skeptic and said, well, there are some parts that I can believe and some parts that are not to be believed. I pray, Lord, you'd open their eyes to the truth that if you haven't told us all of the truth, then you haven't told us any of the truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to people today, bring them to salvation, help them to understand what Jesus did on the cross, how he died and he arose from the grave for our justification. Believing in him is the only way that we will be saved. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.